With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I own it. I did that. Not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses. I just want to be free. Well, hi there, everyone, and welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. I'm your host, Jean McCarthy. I write the blog Unpickled, where I've been telling my story of life after alcohol since my very first day of sobriety, way back in 2011. I tell my story there, and I invite you to share your stories here. Well, many of us who make the change to sobriety find our lives so improved that we wish everyone could know what we've learned. We want to shout it out from the rooftops, at least sometimes, and we want to help everyone we meet who's struggling change their lives, sort of, and we want to shine a light for all to see, except, well, that's kind of hard to do, right? I mean, a lot of us kind of have the enthusiasm to share it, but it's, it's hard to do that. Well, it's not hard if you're today's guest. Sarah Roberts, a woman with many years of recovery who has made it her life's work to shatter the stigma of addiction and the stigma of recovery and put tools into everyone's hands to break free of the things that are holding us back. Her work reaches beyond sobriety, even into our relationship with food as well. Sarah Roberts, welcome to the Bubble Hour. Oh, my goodness. What a wonderful way to start this conversation. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I really appreciate what you do, and I, your enthusiasm is just huge, and you really do have the lighthouse thing going of just letting people know that, that there are tools and, and being there to put them in their hand. And I, I respect that's a hard thing to do because in doing this show week after week for you know a number of years now, I can kind of step in and out of it as I can fit it into my life. But you really have made this your life's work. So I want you to start by telling us, uh, your story and and how it evolved into this place that you're at now. Mm, wonderful, thank you so much. Um, so my story: 16 years ago, I um, I got sober, and prior to that, I was somebody who, at the age of 15 years old, I tasted alcohol for the first time, and it completely changed everything in my world. It made it very obvious that I could not live without this substance. It finally was that sort of um, that tranquilizer, if you will, that feeling that I got from it that just made me know that this was the way in. This was the way that I could fit in with the crowd that I wanted to fit in with. This was the way that I could be in my body and feel in my body the way that I wanted to. I was always sort of um, that kid that was kind of on the margins. I was, I, I was sort of an average kid. I got along with people, moved around a lot as a kid, and had to really quickly try to just fit in. And I would mold myself to whoever I was surrounding myself with at the time. And so 
when I look back at my story and I think about the way I was as a younger kid, I mean, I was raised in a family where alcohol was absolutely glorified, romanticized. Wine was on the dinner table every night. Um, and it was just something that was just a normal. It was a normal part of everyday life. My mother was a homemaker, and I'm extremely grateful to her for so many of the lessons that she taught me about, um, about eating healthy whole foods and putting a meal together and teaching me how to cook and all of those wonderful things that she did teach me Um, but along with that we uh, you know it was like I say wine alcohol it was really glorified and normalized in my entire family my extended family as well and so I grew up just knowing that that was just part of life that was how people celebrated it's what people did when they commiserated it's how people communicated and uh, certainly how everybody just got along a lot better and so I didn't grow up in a tumultuous household I wouldn't say it that way it was very calm Uh, my parents got along really well there was a lot of love in our home but appearances were certainly valued over emotions so while my mother will even now and you know she you know if she ever listens to this she'll know that I'm not throwing her under a bus but she'll even know that um Yes, there were lots of conversations at the dinner table every night. It was our chance as a family to come together, but it was just a lot of my parents talking and them drinking wine and my brother and I sort of like, when can we leave the table? And so probably at about age nine years old, I kind of, when I look back at my life map, if you will, I can see where I started reaching for sugar. So I used chocolate to soothe my emotions, not realizing that's even what I was doing, but I was having these deep cravings for sugar, for chocolate. And my parents, um, they uh, socialized a lot. They, ho- they were hosts a lot for a lot of different parties. And um, people would come to our home. And so they would often bring chocolate as a hostess gift. And because my mother didn't really allow us to eat a lot of sugar or candy or chocolate, they would, all these, you know, boxes of chocolate would end up in the downstairs freezer. Well, I would find myself going down into the downstairs freezer, sneaking out the box of chocolate, carefully cutting it open, sneaking out a few pieces around the corner. I would eat them. I would put the box back and hope that no one ever said anything. And no one ever did. It's not like my mother or father ever said to me, hey, you know, what's going on with the half-empty, you know, eaten boxes of, half-eaten boxes of chocolate in the freezer? Or, you know, we had four boxes in the freezer. Now there are two. What happened to that? So there wasn't a lot of really deeply getting into what was going on in our lives as kids. And I think that both my brother and I feel that my parents just sort of were very surface level and um, and maybe that's a sign of the times of, of what things were of how things were evolving for them back then but they were very much into themselves and into their lives and uh, and again we had a calm household and a lot of love there they told us they loved us they showed us a lot of love with hugs and and affection but um, but really wanting to know who we were and what was really going on for us and the struggles we were experiencing in you know young adolescence you know those tween years those awkward teen years. Um, and they just really didn't show that they were super interested in that. And so I feel like what happened with me is that a lot of what happened was I, I just, again, you know, we moved around a lot and I would just immediately get into whatever crowd would accept me and I would just adopt whatever values that they espoused. And that's how I sort of went along my life. And so at 15 years old, when I first had that taste of alcohol, that's when it was like, oh, my gosh, you know, screw the sugar. <laughs> I don't need to eat chocolate anymore. This is going to do it for me. And I just remember that feeling. It was straight vodka. You know, it was not, 
even a wild berry cooler or some type of a sweet drink. It was, I went all in and I bought, that was the first alcohol that I ever really remember drinking. I'm sure I'd had sips of wine or beer from my parents, you know, previous, but this moment at 15 years old, um, you know, the group of us were buying these little bottles of, of vodka straight or rum or whatever. Mine was vodka. And that's what we did. We were walking around the neighborhood and I drank that whole thing. And that was the beginning of my, my drinking. And I continued drinking. And I would say I became a full-time drinker when I was probably 18, 19 years old. So I started smoking at 15 and 16, right after I'd started drinking. And um, that kind of went hand in hand. So addiction has certainly been part of my story for as, you know, really as long as I can remember. And so I continued to drink um, addictively, certainly, it, you know, you know, alcohol was really starting to cause some problems in my life and in my relationships. And I was choosing relationships based on the amount that they drank, because I did not want to be singled out in my relationships. It was like, even my friend relationships, if everyone was drinking and everyone, no one was shining a light on my alcohol consumption, then that was great. Then I was fine. Then everything was cool. But if I was starting to get into a crowd or if I wanted to be friends with people that didn't drink the way I did, I would, you know, extract myself from that relationship. It was like, I don't want to have any light shone on this. I want this to be normalized. I, I've grown up in this. This is normal to me. And so anyone that doesn't drink you know, heavily and to get intoxicated and to get that feeling, um, then I just don't want to be around them. And I don't want to be judged by them. And so it really shaped so much of my life, my relationships with men and who I spent my time with. And again, the values that I that I espoused and, um, and that I adopted. And so I continued my drinking career until at the age of 29, I got a DUI. It was a car accident. It was a terrible decision on my part to drive. And I had been dating a guy that I really didn't feel was, um, you know, was really the right partner for me. He had started to question me on my drinking. He wasn't much of a drinker. I did not like that. And so I'd ended the relationship. And I went out for dinner with his next door neighbor, who I'd become friends with over the several months that he and I had been dating. And so she wanted to go out for dinner just to, you know, to catch up and to just say, you know, are you sure this relationship is over? And I really like you. And, we're, you know, we were becoming friends. And, you know, we lived right next door. At that, you know, He lived next door to her. And it was so convenient. And are you sure it's over? And I started to get really melancholy after the second bottle of wine uh, with her. And I decided to follow her home, which, again, she lived next door to this guy that I'd been dating, and uh, we didn't make it home. There was an accident. Again, I, I was charged with a DUI. I was handcuffed and placed in the back of the, the cruiser, and I was taken to a holding cell where I spent the night. So it was a completely devastating, awful, terrible time in my life. I really knew in that moment, uh, sitting in the back of that car, I knew I was an alcoholic. I no longer use that term, but at the time, I literally just knew it in my bones. I had known it for a long time, but never wanted to say the word, never planned on quitting drinking, never wanted to quit drinking, really just kept on trying to figure out how I could keep fitting it into my life and try to keep mitigating all of these you know, negative issues that could come up and keep trying to fix them and, and push them under the rug and just keep moving forward. And um, anyway, this DUI made it, you know, impossible to do that. I was uh, being groomed to become partner of the firm that I was working with. I adored my boss and my colleagues. And I looked over, I oversaw six different territories, and most of them I drove to. So I knew that losing my driver's license was going to mean I had to quit my job. 
I knew that if I had to quit my job, I would have to come up with some kind of reason why, because I could not bring myself to tell the truth to my boss, who I loved like a father. He was an amazing man, and I was so ashamed. And I just simply didn't want to admit to anybody what was really going on with me. And so I had to sell my car. I quit my job telling my boss that I had decided to achieve my lifelong dream of going back to business school, which he was like, was that your dream? And I said, yes, I just have never talked about it before. And it certainly hadn't really been a dream, but I decided to make it a dream. And so I enrolled in business school and I spent three years there and I really, really worked my tail off. Um, I was somebody who was never a good student. I was sort of a B and C student in, in, uh, in high school. I never applied myself. I was always smoking and, you know, doing drugs and drinking and doing stupid things. So um, I never even knew if I could be smart. I didn't know if I could apply myself, if I could achieve any type of success at, at college or university. And I was, um, I was really pleasantly surprised that after applying myself and really making the decision that I was going to make this right, I was going to make something out of this mess turn into something beautiful. And so I really applied myself at college and I graduated at the top of my class and I spoke in front of um, the entire school. When I graduated, I was awarded with the highest honor um, of the college. And I just remember standing there looking at my parents who I hadn't told that I was receiving this award and just seeing their pride and see and feeling the pride in myself. And really, I can say that that was sort of the very first time I had ever felt that level of pride in myself. And so it was really um, almost addictive in a way. It was like, wow, I just want to keep going from here. I really knew that I didn't want to just settle back into old habits. But what had happened when I first quit drinking, so I was 29 years old, got that DUI, and then enrolled in college, I moved in with the guy that I was thinking I was breaking up with because he lived so close to the college that I could walk. And I knew that without having my car, I couldn't drive. I couldn't get across the city every day and taking a bus would have taken two hours. So I moved in with him. And those first few nights after realizing that I was an alcoholic, knowing that I could not drink alcohol safely, I knew it was creating such havoc in my life. Um, what happened is I was laying sort of in the fetal position, you know, devastated, not sure where I was going to turn. And I sort of looked at him and I said, I, I just want you to get me some ice cream. Like, let's, I just want to have ice cream. And so he went to the store and came back with uh, a couple of tubs of Ben and Jerry's ice cream. And we sat and ate each of us an entire tub. And the next night, I, I think, or maybe the next, the following night, but I asked him to do it again. I said, oh, I just, I really want you to go and get some, some ice cream. I'm just, I'm, I need to have ice cream and I don't want to feel guilty about it because I'm not drinking. So, you know, if I've got to get rid of my drug of choice, then at least give me some ice cream. And so he went back and did the same thing. And after a couple of weeks of this, of sort of every few nights um, eating entire tubs of ice cream or other sugar, I started to really look at it and say, wait a second, like what is going on here? And I had been lying to everybody about why I wasn't drinking anymore. Even some of my closest friends, I told them that I wasn't drinking because I had suddenly seen the light and decided to become this healthy person that I just think that's a great way to live life. I'm going to no longer drink alcohol. I'm going to start working out for basically the first time, you know, really working out in my whole life. And I'm going to start really learning about nutrition and diet and nutrients and, and how I can feel my very best. I'm going to do a cleanse and I'm going to do all these great things. And my friends were just like, okay. And really that made a lot of those friendships, um, pretty much fall away uh, because they were really just a lot of them drinking 
companions, and they were not interested in health or <laughs> doing anything to improve theirs. And so I was able to walk away from some of those toxic relationships pretty easily. And then other ones um, that were closer to me, I was just lying to them and just saying, yeah, I've, I've just quit drinking because I'm, I'm super into health now. And they were like, Okay. And so I decided that after this two week binge session of eating Ben and Jerry's with my then boyfriend, um, wait a second, if I'm going to keep up this, this guise, this lie that I, that I'm this health and wellness person, I better start figuring out how to do that. And I don't think I'm going to be able to keep eating ice cream every single night. And also I'm kind of feeling crappy and I want to figure out how to feel better. I, I don't want to just not drink alcohol and have my whole life be shitty. Like I really wanted to have a good life, to feel well, to feel whole and to feel happy and joyful. And I wanted to find a way to figure out how to feel some freedom. I wanted to not feel like I was white knuckling every single day. And so I went on, you know, an escapade. I went on, you know, on this, this whole journey where I started reading voraciously about um, nutrition and fitness. And I started working out with a personal trainer for the first time in my life. I started developing muscles that I'd never seen before. And I started feeling really good. I started waking up and having more energy and less brain fog. And I really do believe that so much of that contributed to my success at college, just feeling so good in my body and feeling so whole and, um, and healthy, but there was still this peace. There was still this lie. I mean, my, my professors would invite me out because I was, I was older. I went back when I was 30 to college. And so my profs would say to me, Hey, you want to get a beer after, after class tonight? Or my, my uh, fellow students, I was a peer tutor to many of them. And they would say like, let's do this in the pub. And I'd say, nah, I'm just going to hit the gym later. So let's just finish this in the library. And then you go and do that. So I was just still being really incongruent. I wasn't fully integrated, as we kind of say in, in my life. I was lying to some people. I had told the truth, of course, to my parents and to some of my very close friends. And of course, my then boyfriend. But, uh, but for most people, I was just hiding this big fat truth of my life out of shame. I was so mired in shame about who I was and about my experiences in life and what I had been through. And that took me a long time. I would say until I started my blog, only back in 2015, I was still waking up every morning and lifting up those heavy bags of shame before, you know, getting on with my day. And so it was really only when I, like I say, launched my blog called Sarah Talks Food. And I really planned on that being a, a blog about health and wellness because I'd been working in the health and wellness um, arena for, for quite some time at the point that I started the blog. And I really thought that I was just going to be sharing recipes and tips and, and strategies on living well and, and all of that. And, um, but I knew that I would have to, the very first post, telling the truth, telling the, telling the truth about why I even got into health and wellness in the first place. It wasn't just this epiphany. It was a rock bottom. And I wanted to be honest about it. And I wanted to share what that looked like for me and felt like for me. And, and then I just have, of course, continued with that blog and it's sort of shaped and shifted into um into all sorts of avenues it's it's inspirational i hope i so i hope it's aspirational it's uh, got again lots of tips and strategies around healthy eating and healthy living but certainly uh the addiction piece going from being addicted to sugar to then transferring that to alcohol as a teenager and then right back to sugar afterwards i knew that i would have to get deep underneath to the emotional work and that's where i really learned that that's what's most important. If we really want to figure out what's going on with our relationship with food 
and sugar and our attachment to it or our reasons for using it to soothe our emotions, we've got to get underneath and we've got to figure out why are we seeking to soothe our emotions. So I feel that that um, you know, goes across the board with any type of addiction that anyone's facing, that we've got to get underneath it all. We've got to realize that the addiction, you know, that's the symptom. That's, that's, not, the, that's not the main root. And so to get into that root is the work. And it's, it's not a lot of fun a lot of the time. It's very, very challenging. It's really tough to do that work. But it has now become my life's work to help other people to, to get to that. So for me, I uncovered that um, because I hadn't bonded with my mother ever, um, I was always looking for my mom's approval. I was always wishing that she would like me and love me and knew that she just didn't. And, and later doing the work, understanding that she just couldn't. And that she was doing the best she could with what she knew. I love Dr. Angelou, my Angelou's, you know, when you know better, you do better. And I, you know, we've, we, my mom and I have had lots of conversations now where she just says, you know, I, I did what I knew how to do. And I totally get that. And here's the trick with that work, though. It was great for me to know that that was the situation that she did the best that she knew how to do. She hadn't necessarily received all of the nurturing and love that she needed from her own mother. And so that was sort of passed down and I get all that. And so I can forgive at a, at a, at a cerebral level, at a mental level, I can forgive, but that doesn't mean that I've healed the wound inside. And so that's why the work that I do with my coaching students, I have a program called One Bite at a Time. And I just, I love it so much because it really is about getting into those old, deep wounds and healing the inner child. So a lot of the work that we do at the beginning of my program is really inviting our inner child in to sit with us. And so if we can look back, we, um, we do a process of life mapping where we just basically look at our lives. We write down on a piece of paper, you know, the first point is the day you're born. And then you go from there at any sort of milestone moments or, or indicators that you can say, yeah, that happened to me, that trauma happened, or that incident happened, or that situation really changed the trajectory of my life, or um, whatever the case may be. And we can go back into those moments, and people do this on their own um, as homework, but they go back into those moments, and they just are able to really soften into what was going on for the child at that time, for themselves at that age, so their seven-year-old self, their nine-year-old self. 13, 15, whatever it is, and they can invite their inner child in. So I like to even sometimes suggest to take out a photo album if you have one of pictures of yourself from that time where you went through that experience so that you can remember what you looked like and you can sort of, you know, really take yourself right back into, into your body at that time. And I suggest, you know, sort of sitting and imagining that you are bringing them beside you and, and putting your arm around them, tucking them into sort of the, the crook of your arm and, and just holding them and talking to them and letting that inner child know know that no matter what happened that was traumatic that that you didn't deserve it that it wasn't your fault that this was not something that you you know that you that you created that this was something that was done to you these were things that happened in your life that were not fair they were not right it was not it was not good it was not healthy but we can we can we can heal it where we are now and then where we are right here and now we can allow ourselves to then be in the present moment 
because that's all there ever really is. And so if we can think that all of our memories, if we can be mindful that they are simply just thoughts that we just keep repeating over and over to ourselves so that even in the present moment, sometimes we can think back to something and still like get those sweaty palms and, and the heart starts to race and our you know, sweat starts to beat on our foreheads and we can get all of those feelings back and our bodies and our brains, they don't tell the difference between whether or not that attack is happening right now in 2019 or if it happened back in 1972 or 84 or 96. So I think it's just all around creating awareness. And, um, you know, this is so much of Eckhart Tolle's work I just re- related to so much. It was the first real self-help book I ever read once I got sober. It happened pretty quickly after I, I um, did get sober. And so I love his point that, you know, awareness, is the greatest agent for change. And so everything I do with the work that, I, that I'm able to do with my students is to just consistently remind them, keep raising your awareness. And that comes from the work that we do emotionally as well as physically with the foods that we're eating. You know, if we don't have any awareness around how we're actually feeling when we're piling in the donuts and the cookies and the crackers and the cake and the Oreos and the chips and the ice cream, if we don't really have any kind of a... Of a of a baseline as far as how do we feel we just going kind of on autopilot thinking that we just need to guzzle the coffee every morning and you know having brain fog is just part of life and you know being tired all the time is just the way it is and as we age we just don't have as much energy and and all of these things we can really create beliefs around all of this and so i i challenge that with my students and i just share with them that no way like we really can raise our awareness around what we're doing and when we use what what i like i i implore them to use it's homework that they hate doing but i make them do it anyway every single time they put something in their mouths and i encourage anyone to do this to start a food mood journal and you know food journaling if anyone's interested in losing weight out there listening um, studies show that we lose three times more weight if we track what we're eating versus if we don't but I am not anybody that's really too worried about weight I'm not I never think about diets I don't I don't, they don't work. I mean, yes, they work in the short term by restricting calories, by cutting out entire food groups, but I am interested in helping people to create a lifestyle, a way of eating that just feels really natural and good to them. And again, a, a way of eating that, that feels like freedom and joy um, because I still eat chocolate. I still will have ice cream. I still, you know, will enjoy chips. And I, you know, I do all of those things just like other people do too. But the point is, is that I crowd out that junk food by staying mindful that my body has very specific biological, physiological needs. And so I know that it needs to be hydrated. I just know that. So I make sure that I hydrate my body, which is a great way to deal with sugar cravings. I know that my body needs protein. We are not eating, a lot of us are not eating enough protein. We're eating a lot of processed foods and carbohydrates. And that means that we're not getting what we need in our bodies. And protein is a powerhouse when it comes to quelling sugar cravings. So if we start our day with a protein-packed breakfast versus the donut, the sugary bagel, the, the, you know, the cookie, whatever it is, or the muffin, um, we're just setting ourselves up for success for the whole rest of the day. So I'm just all about, you know, really kind of hacking it, really kind of coming at it from a perspective of let's look at these bodies like the precious vessels that they are. They have absolute needs that need to be met or else we're not going to feel as well as we want to. We are just going to go through life 
on this with this feeling around, you know, I guess I'm supposed to be tired. I guess I'm supposed to have no energy. I guess I'm supposed to gain weight and just kind of not feel great all the time. And and I just I just challenge that at every at every step. I feel better at 46 years old than I ever did in my 20s when I was drinking. I woke up every day hungover. I had to slam my you know snooze button a few times before I'd even just drag my butt to the shower. I never considered putting water in my body first thing. I mean, I certainly that's not true. I'm sure I would chug some water because of dehydration. Um, but I wouldn't have done it from a mindful place of, of, you know, my body needs to be hydrated and I love my body and I want to care for it. And that's really what I want to help people to get to is, is that feeling of reverence for these incredible vessels. I love the line. Uh, I think it's Jim Rohn who says, if you don't take care of the most precious gift you'll ever receive your body, then where else are you going to live? And so I just think that if all of us can just be mindful that, you know, if we can take care of these beautiful bodies of ours in, in as many ways as we can, including having a piece of cake at a birthday party and doing fun things like that now and again, um, you know, that's part of it too. But if we can do as many things as possible to, to support them in, in what they need to do, then they are only here to support us. Our bodies have no other agenda. They never want to hurt us. They just simply want to survive for us. And, um, and so we can, we can certainly help them thrive if we do a lot of those right things. So that's where it all kind you know, of started and ended. Wow. Your enthusiasm for it just has me smiling as you speak. I can hear the joy in your voice when you talk about it. It really is your life's passion, <clears throat> not just because of the, the way that you yourself feel, but the, you have a lot of joy in sharing it with others. I can tell just as you talk yeah, about I it. I do. Thank um, you. <laughs> and I was going to comment that for me, one thing that, that, it really sticks in my mind is is um, the times where my father um, was in the hospital for a month before he passed away and just seeing all the different roommates that came through in the bed next to his, you know, with oxygen tanks and like too weak to get out of bed. And when you sort of see the long-term effects of abusing our body and like his generation, everybody smoked, right? And then you yeah, yeah. now we look at what that does to them as as elderly beings and it just is there is no repair for the damage that that does and I think oh my god I could never smoke like I mean I did when I was younger because I did (laughs) but but now I'm so glad I've quit because I I I mean it it is so um visual the effect that it has on us and um uh, someone I I know and care about very much has um Long term, permanent brain damage and 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 dementia from uh, from alcohol use, and to see you know someone the same age as us who is yeah. living like a ninety year old woman, you know what I mean? Like to yes. to be in full time care and not to be able to look after yourself, and you're like, wow, that is what wet brain does. Um, that yeah. that that brain damage from alcohol is a real thing. So when you look at it in terms of extremes. It's easy to motivate in the moment. But what I wanted to ask you was for, for, I assume a lot of us, because it happens to me, therefore it must be normal, (laughs) (laughs) is that I find I kind of go through seasons, Sarah, of of healthiness. So I'll I'll get on a kick for a while, and it feels really easy, and it really flows, and I can go without things, and I'm like, yes, this is it. I've got it. I'm going to live this way for the rest of my life. But then habits creep back in, and before I know it, like, you know, I'm back in the the bagel for breakfast before bed, you know, mm-hmm. cycle, and 
and I'm thinking, wait, where did my where did my oranges go? Like, where? How did I fall out of that? What's your, how do we make it stick? Like, how do we really make it a life, a way of life? Oh, such a great question. So here's the way I really look at it: that um, with time, habits really can take hold and they can just become like brushing our teeth. So none of us have to have any thought in the morning that I really should brush my teeth. Like we just do it. And that's because we have such a huge belief in our brains that brushing our teeth is a non-negotiable. Like it's a healthy thing to do. It's what we're going to do. And it's just socially acceptable to brush your teeth before you leave. So we have this massive belief in our brain that's never challenged. So our habits align with the action of brushing our teeth. So we have a habit of brushing our teeth. The action is we brush our teeth and it all keeps going around in a circle. If you can picture beliefs, habits, and actions as in a circle. The problem is when we make the decision, okay, that's it. I'm sick of this lifestyle. I don't want to keep eating junk and chips and and all of this stuff and bagels for breakfast. I'm going to get started on this healthy lifestyle. I know it's really good for me and I'm going to do it. And everyone tells me it's good for me. Our belief is tiny. It is tiny that we could ever really be a healthy person that enjoys this kind of a lifestyle, that lives this kind of way. We have a very small belief in our brain that that's possible. So we have to try to grow that belief. But just by saying it isn't going to grow it. So what about the habits that we can do? Well, every day a habit isn't built yet. We haven't built that habit of eat, you know, hydrating in the morning, eating that high-protein breakfast. It's not become a habit. It's still clunky and chunky and hard for us. But the way that we can really get there is to say, you know what, it might be hard, but I'm going to keep acting my way. I'm going to keep it so that my actions are aligned with the belief that I can get healthy if I keep going. And in that way, we can start to grow that belief in our mind that we really can become healthier. And it does take time. And that's the thing. We just want everything right now. We want the pill to make it better. And if we don't see the instantaneous results, we can start to get really derailed. And we start to think it's just not worth it. I've sacrificed for an entire week. Um, and, you know, I've sacrificed all the joy in my life, all the fun of eating the chocolate, the cookies, the candy, the chips at night. I've gone to bed early. I'm drinking water. I'm doing all this. So I'm doing all of this sacrifice, all of this deprivation, all of this starvation. I'm starving all the time. And I'm only seeing a pound of weight loss. I'm only feeling marginally better. Like it's not worth it and so we can get sucked back into it's just not worth it it's not working quickly enough and so certainly um, really trying to get to those bigger growing those beliefs by acting our way by just working every single day to say to ourselves what can I do today to get myself a little bit closer what can I do today to keep moving forward instead of being pulled back I don't want to allow myself to get pulled back And these are those neural pathways that we talk about in the brain. So if you think about any shortcut you ever took when you were a kid, you crossed the neighbor's lawn, and of course that area of grass got completely tamped down over time, over time, over time of all the kids taking that shortcut. That's like the neural pathways in our brain. And so when we think about changing from that really easy button that our brain's like, but wait, look over here. Like, this is what you used to do. Why aren't you doing this anymore? It was so much easier when you just ate that crap and you did that thing and you didn't exercise. That was so much easier. And Stephen Pressfield has an amazing book that I recommend to anybody. It's one of the um, required reading for my program as well. It's called The War of Art. 
And it doesn't matter if you're not an artist, uh, although I believe we all are, and he certainly states that. But the point is that resistance is always going to be there no matter when we have any kind of a dream in our lives. So if the dream is to become, you know, whatever career, a painter or whatever, that's there and resistance is going to be there telling you all the reasons why you can't be. Even small things or not, not so small, but even with our diet and our lifestyle, that can be a dream that you have in your life. You've got this vision that, okay, I want to be healthy. I'm sick of this life. I'm sick of feeling crappy. I, I know I'm supposed to do it. I want to live longer. I don't want to die of a disease. And I want all these things, and we try to have this dream, and we have to just know that the bigger the dream, the greater the resistance. It's, the, it's like the law of gravity. So whether we want to believe in this or not is not, it, it's, you know, inconsequential. The point is, is that resistance will be there. So every time it's that feeling of, I should eat this orange instead of this bagel, but I'm just going to eat the bagel, that is resistance. And in that moment, you have an opportunity for growth. In that moment, you have a chance to say, you know what, I'm going to just look at you resistance and say, I don't know if I can swear on this podcast, so I'll say F off, (laughs) you know, get out of here. Um, and I'm just going to tell it to go away and I'm going to keep with the plan that I had to eat the orange um, or, you know, using your example. So it's just that simple that we have to realize just that simple, just that simple, not easy, but it, it is that simple to just realize that whenever we have a dream for something in our lives, resistance will be there telling us, no, 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 no. That's way harder. The way we'd been doing things was way easier. Just do the easy way. Our brains will Always, every single time, look for the easy button. And it's a hell of a lot easier to not work out. It's a hell of a lot easier to not wake up and hydrate and, and prepare yourself a, a high-protein breakfast, to pack your lunch, to spend two hours on the weekend prepping vegetables, to get a few things ready for the week, for lunches and for meals, to, you know, to prioritize this stuff. It's harder. It's just simply, you know, to me, I don't think of it as harder because it's so long now that I've been doing it. And you can really create, you know, some easy buttons, even with healthy eating. But at the beginning, it is clunky, chunky, harder. It feels really awkward. But after after some time and after consistently pushing resistance away and knowing that it'll always be there that's a way in. That's a really, really important way in. So I hope that answered your question and helped you to know that, yeah, it's never going to be gone. It's never like I sit here every single time that I have a craving for chocolate and just, it's no big deal. Like I have to look at it and go, "Mm, not today, you know, not today. I really look at my health um, and my body um, like a bank account. I just say, and I say this to my students a lot too, like, I don't, I don't have any issue with you having chocolate, candy, cookies, whatever, you know, you're going to do that stuff, you know, from time, from time to time, because if we don't, you know, we're just consistently pushing it away. I mean, sooner or later, we all know what happens. We just rebel like teenagers and anyone listening to this is listening to this podcast is likely, you know, in some form of addiction or has experience with that. So we know that that's not usually a great way for us to, to move forward. So if we can just kind of know that the resistance is going to be there, that we have to look at our bodies like a, a bank account and say, okay, I can have that cookie later, but my body has needs. So if I'm going to have the cookie later today, I better make sure that I give my body the vitamins and nutrients and minerals and enzymes, the, the macronutrients, the micronutrients that it needs. And from there, then I can make other choices. 
And what happens is so often, once we're full, once we've eaten that healthier option, that, that food that we know is nourishing us, that's giving our body what it needs, that craving can be gone in a lot of cases. That craving for that junk it just goes away when we're not hungry anymore. I mean, our bodies naturally, our brains naturally crave salt, fat, and sugar. It's just they're hardwired to do so. And so we just need to realize that, again, it's kind of like the law of gravity. We know that that's the case. Also know that that's not what we want to do because that's not going to advance the ball if our, if our you know, passion is to become a healthy person, to live healthier, to, to live in a body size that feels right for us to have energy and vitality, to wake up not feeling hungover from sugar or junk food or whatever, um, we just have to kind of know that we've got to crowd out the junk by making sure that we're giving our bodies the nutrients that they need to thrive. And then from there, we can make those choices with eyes wide open. And that's why that food mood journal is so key, because we can just go on autopilot for so much of our lives. We just don't have a clue what it feels like when we grab that handful of M&Ms off our colleague's desk, walk to our desk, and and munch 10 M&Ms. Ten minutes later, how are we feeling? We don't think about it. So the food mood journal is really intended to just consistently raise my students' awareness around, okay, let's figure out how are we feeling and some people have uncovered that they actually have a dairy intolerance very common 75 percent of the world is actually lactose intolerant and so they'll find wow I feel really bloated and gassy 15 minutes after eating you know dairy every single time I have milk I feel kind of crappy perfect like that's being a detective in your own life same thing with grains a lot of people myself included I just don't um, I don't tolerate grains very well so when I eat oatmeal which I love but when I eat it, I know that I'm going to feel kind of crappy. Or if I eat a cookie or a bagel or a brownie or whatever, I know I'm not going to feel great. And then, of course, with refined white sugar. I mean, it really, to me, it's a drug. It acts like a drug in the body. Um, it, it spikes dopamine just the way that cocaine and alcohol do. And it lights up those reward centers. So we keep seeking more and more of it. And when we don't have a healthy gut microbiome because we've depleted it with so much abuse, with so much refined carbohydrates, junk foods, sugar, junk, crap, our bodies naturally, our gut microbiome is just craving it, wanting it. And so that's why I wrote the book called The 28-Day Kick the Sugar Challenge, which really just helped people to completely do um, a cleanse. I had done a candida cleanse a few years prior to writing the book. And I just found that it really, really changed my cravings. It really allowed me to have just oh my gosh, it just felt like this big weight lifted off of me where it was like, oh my gosh, it was hard to do. The, it was very strict. But at the end of the month that I did that candida cleanse, it was like, oh my gosh, I feel so much lighter, so much better, so much more in control of my cravings and just in my life in general, it just really served me. And so I adapted that. I write about that in my book where, you know, I don't, I'm not quite as strict with, with mine and I keep a few other things in making it really accessible for vegans and vegetarians as well. And, um, and I don't promote any type of eating lifestyle. It's, it's everyone gets to choose what, what works for them. I feel like we are, you know, seven and a half billion people on the planet and there are that many diets. And, um, and again, I'm not interested in diets. So the point of the 28 days going off sugar is really about recalibrating um, our, our gut microbiome, our brains, and also to really feel that sense of pride at the end of doing something like that. I mean, no one can say that they've gone 28 days without sugar hardly. So anybody that comes through it is always just so pumped and jazzed because it's like, wow, I've done something that no one, so few people are able to do. And it's just such a great feeling, especially in this world where we are bombarded, we are assaulted on every street corner with a Starbucks or a 
coffee shop or a donut place or, you know, even every grocery store, no matter where we go, we are assaulted with this. And then of course, with all of the marketing, I mean, it's just, the sugar industry has such a heavy hand and, and marketing is, you know, it's insidious. And so I think that that's why just really having that awareness raised will help so many people to be able to then raise their own children to know that let's look at what we need to put in our bodies. Let's talk about our bodies and let's talk about what vitamins and nutrients are and why our bodies need them. Let's really get the conversation going. We've completely outsourced our food supply to the point where we don't even know what food is anymore we don't know what we should be eating what we shouldn't be eating and so I really try to keep it super simple with everybody that I work with and it's just simply a matter of eat real food not too much mostly plants and that comes from Michael Pollan and I'm a huge fan of his and when he broke it down into those three lines it was like yeah that's easy I can I can totally get on board with that so cooking our own food, you know, really eating whole real foods as often as possible, crowding out the junk, serving our bodies in as many ways possible, moving them in as many ways possible, thinking positive thoughts, you know, surrounding ourselves with positive people and, and experiences that lift us up rather than drag us down. Um, these are all ways that I just feel like we can all live with greater freedom and joy in our lives. You know, it strikes me as you're talking about food and eating, the parallels between this and everything we say about giving up alcohol, even in terms of being bombarded with it and the marketing and digging deeper what's behind the craving, hungry, angry, lonely, tired, halt, that acronym. Mm-hmm. You know, I, mm-hmm. I use it to this day, eight months later. Um, I still think, okay, why am I feeling this way right now? Like in a social setting, Everyone else is having wine. What am I really feeling? I'm feeling social anxiety, you know? <laughs> I'm and that's to amazing awareness. Yeah, and that's such amazing yeah. awareness. Just asking yourself those questions as you're going into those experiences. That's brilliant. Digging a little deeper. And so for you, you've really identified that. And it's very common that um, food behaviors are very often a fellow traveler with other addicted behaviors like drugs and alcohol. Um the the challenge I find is that um, you know we can we can be completely abstinent from drugs and alcohol and have none, but we can't really be we can't be completely abstinent from eating. We can't cut that out of our life, so it's a little more tricky. But yeah. what I want to zero in on is something that you talked about, and that is that addiction transfer over over the um, the period of time where you quit alcohol. And I often tell people go ahead and have some sugar if you're craving alcohol because it does negate alcohol cravings it does fire up those pleasure reward pathways and it confuses the palate at the same time so um what would you what do you recommend like do you say if you're trying to quit drinking worry about sugar later do you recommend people tackle both at the same time is there sort of a a transfer transference that's tolerable for a period of time how do you tackle that that sort of um what would you say that like crossing over mm-hmm. where there yeah. is danger of transfer addiction transfer but something needs to take the pressure off alcohol how do you approach that period of time yeah 
great, great question. So I, you know, I'm really, I struggle with that because I see so many, I did not do AA just to start off. I did not choose that route because again, I was in such denial about the truth of me that even going to a meeting and sharing who I was and what was going on with me was just out of the question. So really that was why I avoided AA. Um, and then I was able to recover in this more whole, in this holistic way that really worked for me. So, um, so I, I'll just start there. But first off, the emotional work is really what I think um, is missing from a lot of what we do when we get sober and we start to think about, oh, my gosh, you know, like for me, I had to have sugar. It was just an immediate visceral response to not drinking alcohol. It was like, oh, my gosh, I, I need to have this. And without understanding what was happening in the reward center of my brain, without understanding what was happening physiologically with me, with, with not having um, any sugar in my system that my body was craving it then because I was missing it from the alcohol. But definitely the emotional work needs to be done. And I think that that's so key because I think what happens is so many people that quit drinking recommend to their friends, don't worry about it. Don't worry about the sugar. Just go for it. Wor- worry about one thing at a time. And I don't necessarily agree with that perspective. For me, I really needed Yes, I was in denial with so many people about what was going on truthfully with me with my addiction, but I really needed to focus on my health. I found that it was a real pathway in to understanding myself better and getting to the root of those emotions. So for me, I just feel like I'm okay with people going the first couple of weeks after quitting drinking and just do not worry. I don't really, I don't care what people do. Just don't drink. Just don't, just don't drink. Just get yourself some time without that habit every single night. So personally for me, what worked really well and does not work for everybody, and you know, I know that, but for me, I was drinking non-alcoholic beer and it was 0%, but it still tasted like the beer, but I had been on beer for the last probably year and a half of my drinking, pretty much, that was my drink of choice. And so for me, the non-alcoholic beer really helped me to still get some of that sugar, um, but the habit that I was able to then kind of get out of by drinking that. Now, for some people, non-alcoholic beer, even at 0%, is just a, a, a deal breaker for them because they, they don't want to be triggered. And I totally get that. And so uh, while that worked for me, it might not have worked for others. And I was still seeking that sugar. So I was still looking for that. And I'm glad that I allowed that in those first few weeks. I'm glad that I just let that kind of, you know, happen in my life. Because I think that if I had right out of the gate said, I'm going to quit drinking and I right away need to be healthy and I'm just going to go on this health kick, I, I needed that time. I needed that little bit of a bridge. So I am, I, you know, I'm sort of for anybody doing it in whatever order works for them. But I don't love the advice to just not worry about the sugar to go however many years you need to go just eating whenever you want. And that's another thing with the, with AA meetings so often, and I have been to some that, you know, at the back of the room, it's just donuts and cookies and, you know, coffee with cream and sugar. And I just find that we're just really feeding into those same addictive tendencies that I think we all kind of want to get away from. I think we don't want to be always sucked into these addictive patterns and these things are really not healthy or healing for us. I don't think anybody that gets sober then just wants to live a moderate life, like just this sort of adequate um, existence. That's certainly not what I wanted for my life. I wanted to thrive in recovery. I wanted to thrive and feel alive and feel excited about getting up every day and, and, you know, enjoying my life. And I find that a lot of people that are sober aren't really thriving. They're not really excited about life and sort of the only joy 
is that chocolate at the end of the day or, you know, the, the pizza, you know, slice of pizza at lunchtime, like lunchtime is it's always meal times. Like that's the joy now is the coffee with cream and sugar first thing in the morning or the three or four of them. And then the food throughout the day that then takes, you know, the place of what alcohol did. So now we're just sitting with this other addictive substance. Food can certainly be addictive. Um, but when we look at refined white sugar, when we look at processed foods, there is nothing redeeming at all. So when you were talking about how, you know, you don't want to, um, how, you know, when you first were trying to, you know, make these healthy changes and you want to have these better feelings around food and you want to have this stick, um, again, I just really feel like if we can do that emotional work and see why we're craving what we're craving, really try to get to the root of it and then, and then make conscious choices with eyes wide open around how we want to feel in our bodies, how we want to feel in our lives, it can lead us to making the choices that help us to feel the way we want to feel. So Danielle Laporte does tons of work on, um, on feeling the way that you want to feel and making choices that lead you closer to the way that you do want to feel. And so for me, that would be, you know, the only advice I can give, you know, I, I, I can only share what I did in my life. And for me, very quickly, I learned about nutrition very quickly. I started using strategies like protein first thing in the morning, hydrating as soon as I woke up with lemon water. Warm lemon water is an amazing liver detox. It's a great way to aid digestion, helps you have an amazing bowel movement every day. And I'm a huge fan of talking about poop. So I hope that doesn't offend any <laughs> listeners. But <laughs> It's like the best thing ever when you wake up in the morning and you have a really, when you eliminate really, really well, um, you just feel so good. And then when you start to nourish your body, and just feel so much better, it really can lend itself to creating a whole life in recovery like you want to create, not just looking forward to that next meal or that, that next sugar. And what happens with sugar is we take it into the body, the body, then the blood, um, you know, raises with, with blood, our blood sugar rises. And so then our pancreas has a job where it says, okay, hey, hormone insulin, now we need you to go in and do your job. And insulin's only job is to regulate our blood sugar. So once it's been raised up by the cookie or the donut or the pizza or whatever we've had, insulin comes in, it's recruited to bring that blood sugar down to more stable. And it actually like opens up the doors to our cells so that our cells can then accept the sugar in. But once the cells have said, oh, that's it, I can't accept any more sugar, this is too much sugar, the rest of that sugar is now stored as fat. And that's why, you know, back in the 1960s, we were lied to. We were lied to because Harvard scientists were paid by the sugar industry to lie to us. They were told that instead of sharing with the world that it is sugar that's at the heart of all of these Western diseases, no, 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 we want you to tell them that it's saturated fat. And that's why all of these years we've all been raised on low fat, no fat, fat free. We all have to get rid of that brainwashing because it was a lie, a big fat lie. If anyone wants to read more, it's called Project 226. And to me, it's just devastating to see what it has done. If we look at pictures of people from 200 years ago, their body size was normal. It was it was standard. It was typical in, in most cases. People were eating whole foods. They were eating the amount of sugar that we're eating now in five to seven hours. It was taking them five to seven days, 200 years ago. And now we're just, we're chugging it back with our high fructose corn syrup in our pop and our soda. We're eating it in every single thing that's in a package. And 
you know, we're, we're pretending that we're making meals when we're just opening up a, pa- a pouch or a packet or a bottle or a jar and dumping it into a pot. And we're calling that dinner. And we're forgetting that we need to cook. We're forgetting that it is not about extracting singular uh, nutrients. Like we take a vitamin pill. Well, that is just such a, uh, you know, a weak way of getting what our bodies need. We need to get it from real whole foods and we really need to understand. And that's why, like my belief is so huge in my brain around what I need to give my body so that it can function optimally, that I don't have to force myself. I don't have to force myself every day to eat well. It's just become my habit, and then my actions are aligned with that. And when I do want to go and have a treat, I have my eyes wide open. I know exactly how I'm going to feel 15, 20 minutes later or the next morning, and I take my lumps. You know, I know that that's how it's going to be. So for me, for that, that whole addiction transfer, it was, um, I, I, you know, I, I realized that it was there, and I think now that there's so much research around it that people realize that it's happening, they kind of are like, yeah, I went from alcohol, and now I'm on sugar, but whatever, at least it's better than drinking. And, and that's a fair enough approach. If that's the approach that someone wants to take, it doesn't work for me. I don't want to live a half-life. I want to truly thrive in recovery. And I don't think that we can really thrive in recovery, not really truly, until we get right with our emotions and the reason why we used whatever substance we used in the first place, and then get to the other side of it by really working hard towards honoring these amazing bodies. We get one life, we get one body, one shot. And the good thing is, is that our bodies are incredibly adaptable. They're amazingly resilient and they have only one goal, which is to heal. They want to survive for us. They want to heal for us. They want to, to thrive for us. And we just have to respect and honor them. And, you know, we don't feed our cars tomato juice. We feed them gasoline or electricity. Um, and so we have to understand that, you know, we just have to do the same things with our bodies. We just have to be mindful of what they require and, um, and, and do as much as we can to, to get them where we want them to go. One last question for you before we go. You mentioned that you no longer use the term alcoholic to describe yourself, and we could do a whole hour on that. I realize mm-hmm. that, that um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of um, – there's there's a lot of talk and thinking about that these days. And um, so what I I believe that I was hearing you say, and, and I want you to expand on this a little bit more, is that language is important and how we see ourselves is important and the language that we choose to address ourselves is important. And we understand that everyone has the, the um, autonomy to choose the language that they want. So without, you know, arguing about a specific word, um, I also find that alcohol, the word alcoholic, um, I use it in the vernacular only when I'm talking to other people in recovery. But um, talk to me about your beliefs around language and how it shapes how we see ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, you're so right. We could spend an hour. And I'm still working on it. You know, when I first came out, um, you know, when I first got my DUI and I knew I was an alcoholic, meaning I knew that alcohol was wreaking havoc on my life. I knew that it was the one thing that I was trying to keep in that I needed to let go of. And I knew that it just was not serving me. I knew that I would never be able to live the life that I wanted to if I kept on drinking. And so when I then fast forward to 2015, when I uh, started my blog, I kind of felt like using the word for the first time, it felt a bit like an F you. Like it was like, 
This is why I don't drink people like leave me alone about it. This is why, because it's a huge issue in my life and, and, and in so many others, but for me, this is why. So leave me alone about it. Cause I was, you know, I was still fairly young and I was going out and people were saying, you know, why aren't you drinking? Do you just, can't you just have one? Like, do you have a problem? Do you? And so I kind of, you know, aligned with it, it, it from that perspective. And as I've continued along in recovery, I find that for me, it's just not all that useful. Um, I find that it almost doesn't allow or encourage further conversation. It shuts the conversation down. And I want to further the conversation. I want to talk to, so, to my, my friends who drink you know, normally or, or however much they drink. I want to be able to have open conversations with other people and not have it be sort of a me against them feeling. And I feel like that's what happens sometimes when I would use the term alcoholic, it would just shut things down. And then we're not having any type of a, of a communication around alcohol use disorder, how it's on a spectrum, how, how many people are affected by this 3 million people dying every year. We've got to look at this, the marketing, the messaging, what we're doing to our children. And so I don't know who it was that said this, but um, it could have been Lara Frazier. That rings a bell to me. It could have been Amy Dresner, but someone talked about, you know, alcoholism. It's, it's part of my experience but it's not my identity. And mm-hmm. I really appreciated that. It was like, it's part of what I've been through. It's a huge part of my life and my story and my work, but it does not define who I am. I am so many other things. And so for me, it just didn't feel congruent anymore with where I wanted to go and, and what I wanted to do and how I wanted to serve in the world. And so I've just chosen to use words like sober, teetotaler, um, you know, I just don't drink, no thank you, <laughs> you know, those kinds of things. I, I just don't prefer to use it as a label anymore for me. You know, and I, I feel like that label actually prevents a lot of people, for a time myself included, from from seeking sobriety because they don't want to be labeled as an alcoholic and only alcoholics can't drink is the thinking, right? Or or to me, I I live in Southern Alberta. So to me, I was like, well, alcoholics and Mormons can't drink. I'm I'm neither. (laughs) But it, it was kind of a revelation to think you can just quit drinking without accepting that label. You can accept the fact that your life is going to be better without it. I tell people, you know what, if you want to give yourself a label, say you're alcohol free by choice. The same yes. way people are vegan or gluten-free, um, yeah. by choice or not by choice. You know, like just just say you're alcohol-free, and that's how you choose to live. And I love it. I really, and labels can be helpful. By the same token, I think you and I both recognize that the, the term alcoholic or addict can be a really helpful label for some people who need to, to wear that banner to remind themselves that abstinent needs to be their calling. But mm-hmm. if it doesn't empower you, then choose what works right <laughs> absolutely you, you you said it perfectly it's so true that I just feel like too many people are waiting I have people in my own life that are saying well I'm not an alcoholic because I can stop or I only drink on weekends or I we're we're creating all of these labels we're we're lying on the on the brochure you know the thing that we're you know are you an alcoholic we're lying on it anyway but I just think you're so right that we're just we it puts us in a box that we don't need to be in but there was a time that I needed it it felt empowering to me it felt really like I was for the first time being honest with myself 
about what was going on with me. So using the word alcoholic, the label for a time really served me well until it didn't. And I think that's another piece to all of this too, is that we're allowed to change. We are always allowed to change, but that can be so scary and so hard. I even know in my own experience that being this different person in my own family, my, my, my father's now passed away, but you know, when I first got sober, he was alive. And so with my parents, my brother, and you know, I was always sort of in this, in this section of the family. Like I was always in this spot in the family and to rise up and to change the way that I wanted to be perceived in my family and the way I wanted to be treated and the way that I accepted, you know, to be treated, all of that can kind of change in recovery when we finally get honest. And that's the biggest lesson is just that being honest. And so for me at the beginning, it was really honest for me to own that label, to accept it as the truth and to know that I could not drink alcohol. I could no longer mess with alcohol. It, it, it was screwing up everything in my life. And so it allowed me a level of honesty that I had never experienced with myself before. I had never, ever, every time I had started to kind of think about drinking in my life, I would just quickly, you know, move those thoughts aside, get in the shower, get ready and go out to a friend's and and drink more because I just could not sit with those feelings. So definitely it afforded me a level of of honesty that, that I couldn't have gotten had I not adopted that label early on. But it's been in the last several years now that I just... I just don't choose to use it anymore. So I think for anybody listening, that's, that's a personal choice. And as long as it fits, keep using it or don't. And that's, that's everybody's choice. How can people uh, find you, read about you, learn about you, and connect with you? Great. So um, I'm on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter as Sarah Talks Food. And my blog is sarahtalksfood.com. And everything's there. And that's Sarah with an H at the end. It is. And Thank you. I also want to mention that you uh, and your partner Roger produced a, a video, a web video series called "Sobriety Starts Here," and I was fortunate enough to be a guest on that yes. series. And so you talk about recovery with a number of different people. How many episodes are in that series? Oh, great question. I think we're at about 28, 30. I'm not sure anymore. We just did mine, which was hilarious because we'd had to, <laughs> we've had it for almost a year now, and we just put mine up as the last episode or the second last episode because I said to Roger, sooner or later, I have got to get in the studio and do my, do my own interview. So <laughs> we finally got that one up. But, yeah, so I think, you know, close to 30 different people. You were wonderful on it. We've got lots of people that I know um, have also been on your podcast as well. And so it's just fun because it's a place for people to start, and that's why the name sobriety starts here it's just a pathway in so we wanted to reach out to people that did smart recovery that did aa that did refuge recovery that were you know doing more holistic approaches people that have been to treatment centers people that had done um that have written books or blogs or we wanted to be able to point people in the direction of all these amazing people like you that are doing such incredible work in the recovery space and so it's a it's a starting point and then from there we hope that people just continue on um learning more and more about whatever it is that whatever tool or resource or or person really sparks their fire so that's that's the whole point of it thank you for pointing and I, that out. I have to say especially in early sobriety for me i wanted like i i needed to see the faces i needed to see faces yeah. of other people who didn't drink and and see that like they were real <laughs> yeah oh, <laughs> so it can I, I really recommend it uh well i recommend it for everyone but particularly any listeners that are in early sobriety and are really hungry to look into the eyes of other sober people and and feel that con- that connection and just just to see that i really encourage them to to check that out and then you ha- also have a new 
uh, talk show that <laughs> is accessed through your website as well. And um, and that it's I read on your blog, so it's dedicated to a holistic view of health that tackles the bigger subjects, subjects like shame and addiction, mm-hmm. trauma, mental health, stress, grief, and more. So you yeah. are a busy lady, and um, I appreciate so much that you took the time to talk with me and share your story for my listeners today. Thank you, Sarah, for being here. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jean. You know how much I adore you. I, I respect you so much. I love what you're doing, and thank you for this opportunity. I've had a great time. My pleasure. So, listeners, that's it for this week. Um, I gave you lots to chew on, so definitely uh, if you need to go back and and listen to certain parts again, I I hope you will do that. That's the beauty of podcasting is that forward and backward button. And um, you can reach Sarah through her website, Sarah Talks Food, Sarah with an H, TalksFood.com. Or if you uh, have my email address in your phone already and that's easier for you, shoot me an email at thebubblehour at gmail.com and I will make sure that Sarah gets it. So until next time, everyone, take good care. I own it, I did that. Not proud that that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses. I just want to be free.
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.